0: So reads the second sentence of the Declaration of Independence. Adopted and made public by the Continental Congress on July the 4th, 1776. This short document, 1300 words, was designed to provide both a rationale for and a declaration of the independence of the 13 colonies that had been at war with the British crown for close to a year. The rhetoric, soaring rhetoric, lofty ideals embodied in this document have inspired Multitudes of people, untold multitudes as they have read it, as they have meditated upon it, and as they have sought in their own way to put it into practice over the last two centuries. It's quite a document to be sure. In any discussion of politics or political theory, the topic of rights necessarily comes up. What are the rights of the individual and what are the rights of the state? And how do those two sets of rights that can and often do clash to be worked out in a practical, day-to-day, week-to-week, year-to-year setting. But you know, a discussion of rights, necessary and helpful as it is, would have been absolutely foreign to a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ in the first century. They would not have entered into such Discussions. They would not even have thought to enter into such discussions, alien to them. You and I bear the name Christian, and we do so with a, with a measure of pride, and appropriately so. It is a term that designates us as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are Christians. But even that term, when it was originally applied to the followers of Jesus Christ, was a term of derision. It was an insult. Now we wear it proudly. I think it's uh, actually somewhat instructional, when talking about the name Christian, to, to realize the fact that it is not the term that God uses, that God chooses to apply to his people. Not at all. Actually, the term that God most frequently uses to apply to his people in both the Old Testament under the Old Covenant and in the New is the word slave, is the word slave. 250 times in the Old Testament, over 100 times in the New, the word slave. And I think it's instructional because when we we use the terminology of slavery, which the New Testament does with great frequency, it it lifts the discussion out of the realm of uh, rights and privileges and instead transfers it to the realm of duties and obligations duties and obligations. And it's critical. It is absolutely critical that we understand and by the power of the Spirit of God seek to apply in our lives the reality of the fact that in the eyes of God, we are slaves. We are slaves. Open your Bibles up to Matthew Chapter 17, we will begin this morning in verse 22. But let me take a moment and pray and ask God to enable us to understand what he has written and apply it to our lives. Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you that it is the inerrant, authoritative word of God, that it contains everything we need for life and godliness. And our Father, on this Fourth of July weekend, as we come together as your people and we open the Word together, we want to hear from you. We pray for your Spirit to be our teacher this morning. We pray, Father, that what we hear, what is said, would be true and faithful to the Word. We pray, Father, that your Spirit would apply it as it is helpful and needed in each of our lives. We pray these things in faith, the power of the Spirit, and on dependence, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Last time, we made the observation that this section of Matthew's gospel is a turning point, that the turning point actually is located back in verse 14 of chapter 17. It is... Jesus' descent from the Mount of Transfiguration, accompanied by uh, Peter, James, and John, and then his return and, and linking up with his remaining disciples. We said it was a turning point in Matthew's gospel and it's and a turning point in the ministry of Jesus because from this point on now, it is essentially a one-way ticket to Jerusalem. There's about six months left in the public ministry and and life of the Lord Jesus Christ until his appointment with the Roman cross. And he is going to begin to make his way south to the city of Jerusalem. He will make three brief visits into the city or its environs, retreating each time rapidly to a place of safety. But along the way, and we noted particularly helpful for the readers of Matthew's gospel and us is that, is that beginning here, Jesus, uh, or, or Matthew, maybe said better, Matthew records a, a series of encounters and teachings that Jesus brings to his disciples as he seeks to prepare them to live together in this new entity called the church, which he has just recently introduced to them. How to live together in community is the big idea, beginning here in this part of chapter 17 and running all the way through chapter 20 of the gospel. We said the lessons that, that Jesus has here, that Matthew uh, records for us here from Jesus, are, are all firmly rooted in the, in the two great commandments of the Old Testament. This is not new material, this is merely the application of the reality that the two great commandments of God have not changed, they remain the same. To love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Great and lofty goals, driving principles, but they need to be applied, they need to be be put into shoe leather, or maybe we should say sandal leather. And so in this section here, Matthew provides that opportunity for us. Very much what is recorded here are part of what it means to make a disciple of Jesus Christ. You remember that Matthew's gospel ends with the Great Commission, right? Go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I taught you. And so the lessons here are part of the all that I taught you, you are to teach them. And thus it is very, very appropriate. These lessons are, of course, set in a historical context, but they are very, very appropriate for you and for me here in our day and age, Southern California, 21st century. We looked last time at the first of these and I call, it's kind of a mini-series we've launched here, and I'm calling it Lessons for Living in Christian Community. The first lesson last week was that we must live by faith, and that was verses 14 through 20. We arrived this morning at the second lesson in this series. It's verses 22 to 27, and the lesson is basically this. We must be willing to surrender our rights, The second lesson for living together in community as the the people of God, as part of this new entity called the church, the body of Jesus Christ, is that we must be willing to surrender our rights. Now, you've heard me say this before, and you'll probably hear me say it until I'm done with Matthew's gospel, but that is that I believe that the apostle Paul had a copy of Matthew's gospel figuratively tucked under his arm as he went out, uh, commissioned to bring the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to the Gentile world. This was a primary, I believe, document for him by which he both evangelized and discipled the Gentile world as they came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God empowering his ministry in such a spectacular way. Paul, in other words, drew upon the lessons of Matthew's gospel, the truth of Matthew's gospel, to explain to the pagan world who Christ was and how they are to live together as the new people of God in this thing called the church. And I think what we'll see this morning is that the two truths that we're going to be looking at together in this section are very much woven into the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And I'll... Show that to you as we go. So, what do we have this morning? We have two examples, two examples of Jesus surrendering his rights, which remind us of the importance of this sacrificial attitude and practice in order to live together in Christian community. These things are critical to live together in a Christian community. So two examples, and we're going to need to move along to take a look at them. So let's do that. First one. First example, in, beginning in verse 22, 23, first example, Jesus surrendered his right to be served. First example, Jesus surrendered his right to be served. Verse 22, and while they were gathering together in Galilee, stop there. While they were gathering together in Galilee, stop there. Okay, just a little little background, a little context to get us into the text here. Jesus and his disciples have been in the north outside the land of Israel in the, in the region of Caesarea Philippi. They've moved to that area in order to get away from crowds and in particular to get away from Herod whose murderous intent uh, must be avoided. There it is on the, on the Mount of Transfiguration, I believe uh, Mount Hermon, that the the, the disciples have this view of the glorified Christ. Returning down from Mount Hermon, gathering together with his other remaining nine disciples, Jesus and the twelve now make their way back into Galilee. They are heading towards Capernaum. They're heading towards Capernaum. Now, they make this, uh, this trip, this trip traveling south through what is known as Upper Galilee. And they do it, according to Mark's gospel, in a secretive fashion. That is, they don't, they don't take the most well-traveled routes. They are moving south again, but they are moving south somewhat secretively. They are seeking to avoid the crowds along the way. And I believe to avoid the premature confrontation with the leadership of Israel. They are returning to their home base, the city of Capernaum. Why? We're not exactly sure, but I, I suspect, personally suspect, that it's, that it's perhaps to resupply in preparation for the journey south to Jerusalem. This will be the last time they'll be in Capernaum. And so I suspect they're coming together. They're saying final goodbyes and farewells and gathering together their supplies so that they can make their way south and Sustain themselves during the remaining time that they're away from their home base. Now, while they are traveling together south from Caesarea Philippi, here through Upper Galilee, Jesus again instructs them with regard to his death and his resurrection. Now, in doing this, here, verses twenty-two, twenty-three, 23, he adds a detail that is not previously given to them in the, in the prior disclosure back in chapter 16 and verse 21. Here, he adds a, just a little new piece of information. And the, and the piece of information is that he is going to be betrayed. He is going to be betrayed or delivered over into the hands of men. Betrayal now is part of the process. But the disciples apparently don't pick up on that. That kind of goes right over the tops of their heads. They don't, they don't get it. They're, they're obtuse to these kinds of things. They don't get it any more than, uh, than a few months earlier uh, where John records in John 6 that Jesus says to them that, that one of you is a devil. And they don't get that either. That apparently just goes in you know, over the top or in one ear and out the other how, how you like it. They don't get it. And they don't get it here. There's a traitor in their midst. A a devil-inspired traitor, as we will find later as the narrative unfolds. And yet they are unaware of it. They are unaware. In fact, their their spiritual dullness is is to such a place. And I think the duplicity of Judas Iscariot is is so practiced that they don't get it right up to and including the Last Supper. You remember? Remember? Where they're at the table, you know, ask him, who is it? And they still don't get it. They don't get it. Now, Jesus says to them here in, in verses 22 and 23, he's teaching them again about his coming death and his, his resurrection. But they don't get that either. They, they get the coming death part. But, but they, they, they miss the betrayal this time, and they miss the resurrection news. They missed it last time. They miss it this time. Why? We're, we cannot be sure Cannot be sure. Perhaps they're just associated with the general resurrection that, according to Daniel chapter 12, comes to all the people of God, and and they don't understand the reality of of the specific resurrection of Jesus three days later. But whatever it is, they miss it, and instead they focus on his death. And they are grieved. The end of verse 23, deeply grieved. Deeply grieved by the news of his death. why well certainly they love him certainly they they enjoy his company certainly they have invested big time in 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 the ministry and the proclamation but i think it goes beyond that i think that i think the grief here also has to do with with a recognition that if he dies at the hands of the jewish authorities which he has said now repeatedly will happen that all hope for them of the messianic kingdom and their place of honor and power within that kingdom is gone. It's gone. So I think there's a fair bit of self-focus in this, in the cause of the extreme grief. And as the narrative begins or continues to unfold here, you clearly see that every time he talks about dying, they come back with a conversation about who's greatest in the kingdom. While they were gathering together in Galilee, Matthew says, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. Beloved, I can only imagine Jesus' grief. Jesus' grief. Jesus' torment. To be among a people of such spiritual insensitivity, a people of such self-focus, it must have grieved his heart. But the reality here of the, of the Savior's suffering and death on behalf of his people is, is actually a very, a very powerful illustration A very powerful illustration of the kind of attitude that we as his followers are supposed to adopt ourselves. This is what it means to live together in Christian community. The death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is is an example for us to live together in Christian community. How do I know that? Well, I know that because the Apostle Paul specifically appeals to the death of Christ as the basis for his appeal to a Christian community 2,000 years ago who were having trouble getting along with each other. And I want to turn you to Philippians chapter 2. And along the way, uh, there's a great lesson here about How to apply theological truth to practical situations. I can tell you that if I were uh, uh, wanting to teach a lesson on on, uh, selflessness and and humility and serving other people, I'm not sure my first text would have been the the, uh, humiliation of Jesus Christ. His incarnation, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. But Paul does exactly that. In Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, he says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, and there is, if there is any consolation of love, and there is, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, and there is, if there are any affection and compassion, and there is, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. "'Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, "'but with humility of mind regard one another "'as more important than yourselves. "'Do not look out for your own personal interests, "'but also for the interests of others. "'Have this attitude in yourselves, "'which was also in Christ Jesus.'" For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, But now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Paul says to this church that you need to take up the example of Jesus Christ. You need to think deeply upon the ministry of Christ, the humiliation of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, where, where the second person of the triune Godhead left the throne room of glory, came to earth, humbled himself by taking on human flesh and not just hum, any human flesh, but human flesh of a slave, of a bondservant. His life was given over to nothing of his own desires. He came only to do the Father's will up to and including his own gruesome, agonizing, horrific death on a cross on behalf of his people. Jesus says it this way in Mark chapter 10 and verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. You see how humility and servanthood are inextricably linked together with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Glorification of Christ, yes, to the right hand of the Father, yes, to be crowned King of glory, yes, but not without going low first. A cross before a crown. And as you and I meditate on that reality, as we think seriously about that reality, we turn it over in our heart and we, in our mind and we pray and, and ask the Spirit of God to really drive it home. It will confront the selfishness that lies deep in my heart and in yours. It will bring us to the place where we recognize that a self-serving attitude, ugly as it is, often is part of our day-to-day experience. That we view the world through our, through our own self-bias. That so We want it to work our way. We know we need to be humble. We know we need to be gracious. We affirm these things. Yet yeah, we struggle. Struggle. The antidote is to be found in the cross of Jesus Christ. Can't get enough of it. We can't get away from it. And nor should we. It is the life changing power of the gospel and beloved when it changes us we begin to live together in community with a kind of love and care and concern that puts others above ourselves that proclaims the reality of the gospel of jesus christ in a very very powerful way jesus says later in the upper room the night of his betrayal and arrest He says, By this they will know that you are my disciples. If you have, fill it in. Love for one another. Love for one another. When we find ourselves low on the love quotient, not love potion, love quotient, maybe love potion too, the answer is to be found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Specifically, his death, his burial in his resurrection. Jesus surrendered his right to to be served. Secondly, secondly, Jesus surrendered his right to be honored. Jesus surrendered his right to be honored. Back to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 17, beginning in verse 24. And when they came to Capernaum, Those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? What in the world is that all about? Well, they're back at Capernaum. This is the the home base. This is where Jesus has been living since he moved from Nazareth. This is where Peter's house is. If you go there today, you can still see the foundations of Peter's house not far from the synagogue at Capernaum. It's It's a little sea town, a fishing village, where Peter lived, along with several of the other disciples. It is there where Jesus took up residence during his public ministry. They are back now in Capernaum, and according to verse 25, where it says when Peter comes into the house, whose house? Peter's house. Evidently, when they came back to Capernaum, Jesus, and I suspect this was his custom, stayed with Peter. He's with Peter in Peter's house. The rest of the disciples disperse throughout the area and stay in other houses. Probably the houses of those disciples who who owned homes in that village. Now they arrive back here in Capernaum, and and the first thing that happens evidently is is the tax man comes. We can relate to that, right? Right? taxman cometh. So they're not been there for long, and there's a on the door, and the taxman's there. And and he he shows up, or they show up, the taxmen, I think is the idea here, and and they come, and they approach Peter, and they say to Peter, uh, uh, is your your teacher, that is your rabbi, is your rabbi uh, intending to pay the two drachma tax? Is going to pay the tax or not? Now, normally, this tax is actually collected in the spring, but is now uh, the fall. It's, it's October ish, early October, Feast of Tabernacles time. And so I suspect what has happened is, uh, is in the spring, I know this to be true, they were outside the country. They were up in, in Tyre and Sidon. And so Jesus and the disciples have been, you know, sort of not around when the taxman cometh. So they're back in town and the taxman figures it out and, and uh, boy, they hunt him down and it doesn't take long. Doesn't take long. The basic idea is you haven't paid your taxes this year, in particular a certain kind of tax the two drachma tax. The double drachma, actually, literally. Now, what is this all about? This is a tax that was collected for the, for the maintenance and care of the temple in Jerusalem. The tax finds its basis back in Exodus chapter 30, verses 11 to 15, where God commands Moses to collect to take a census of Israel, every male, 20 and above, and then to collect from each of the ones in the census a half shekel tax, half a shekel a head. Doesn't matter whether you're rich, doesn't matter whether you're poor. When When God gave it through Moses, everybody paid the same amount. And the purpose of the tax, it's very clear, the purpose of the tax is to help defray the costs associated originally with the tabernacle, Now the temple. I mean, there's sacrifices going on all the time there. There is wood for the fire. There is is water that needs to be drawn and and transported for the various washings and libations and so forth. And there's the, the, uh, if I can say it this way, there's the laundry that has to be done. I mean, when you're slaughtering animals all over the place, it's a messy job. And so somebody's got to pay for all of that. Somebody has to pay for the sacrifices. Somebody has to pay to have the firewood cut and transported and to you know, buy the firewood. Somebody needs to, to have the whole, the whole thing with water transported. Somebody needs to do laundry. There's just a lot of things that have to be done, practical things, for the ministry of the tabernacle and then the temple. And so this tax was collected to jumpstart the system initially, just to put some money in the bank and get it started, if you can say it that way. There is disagreement among scholars as to whether this was a one-time event in Exodus 11 or whether this was an annual requirement. There's a difference of opinion on that. Later, in the course of Israel's history, the tax is collected again on other occasions, always associated with uh, the temple and the need to pay for the ongoing activities and ministry of the temple. Nehemiah chapter 10 verses 32 and 33 is a place where it is spoken of then, although there it's, it's reduced to a third of a shekel. So there's some flexibility in the amount apparently. Now by the time of the New Testament, this is the important thing, by the time of the New Testament, there is a great diversity of opinion about this temple tax, this, this uh, double drachma. And the, and the diversity uh, falls in a, in a way that maybe would surprise you at first. The Sadducees, who are associated with the temple, actually taught that this was an optional tax. It is the Pharisees who taught that it was a required tax. In fact, it was your patriotic duty to pay the tax. So the Sadducee says, you know, it's a matter of conscience. The Pharisees said, no way, it's your patriotic duty, pay it. The Qumran community, that is a community that lives to the east of Jerusalem, along the banks of the Dead Sea, kind of a separatist community among the the Jews of that first century, they said, hey, you only pay it once in a lifetime. Just a one-time affair. And certain rabbis claimed that they were exempt from the tax because they were teachers of the nation. So you can see there's a lot of diversity in the time of Jesus with regard to this tax. It is a matter of conscience, People have freedom to pay it or not pay it. And so they come here in chapter 17, verse 24. They come to Peter and they say to him, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? They phrase the question in such a way they expect a positive answer. Yes, he does. And Peter readily obliges them. Of course, Jesus is patriotic and he'll pay his tax. It is very, very common, by the way, because of the, uh, w- the way the tax is, is structured, for two men to go together and give one coin to cover both of them. That's a very common way to pay that tax. Verse 25. Peter says, yes. And it says, when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? Now, Peter comes back into the house. Now, we don't know. The text doesn't say, did Jesus overhear the conversation on the doorstep kind of thing? Or in his omniscience, did he just know? You can have it, uh, whatever suits you. It's fine with me. But the point of the matter is, as soon as Peter comes into the house, before he has the opportunity to raise it, Jesus hits him with it. He says, Peter, what do you think? About this whole process. And, and, he, and he uses this question. To, to construct an analogy. And he, and he uses the analogy. To, to, to teach a very very important point. And the analogy here is very very simple. Alright what do you think Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? Customs are taxes on goods. Poll tax is a, is a tax per head who do they collect them from from their sons or from strangers this is kind of hard for us you know we we don't live under a under a king so a little bit more you know little distance here uh, time and culture but the basic idea is this kings collect taxes because they need to support their family and their bureaucracy so they collect taxes Kings also provide for the maintenance, financial maintenance of their family, right? If your dad's the king, you're in a pretty good place, you know what I'm saying? He's the taxing authority, and he gives you an allowance. And so basically what Jesus says is, listen, when kings collect taxes, they don't collect taxes, they collect them from everybody else except their own family. Why? Well, because it would be foolish to collect a tax from your son and turn around and have to take it back out of your pocket and give it to him. So it's obvious who you collect taxes from. You collect taxes from those who are not part of the royal family. They are strangers. So the logical conclusion is that if you are part of the royal family, you are exempt from taxes. Very straightforward, very easy to understand. Just verse 26, when Peter said, From strangers, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are exempt. Then the sons are exempt. Just a few days before on the Mount of Transfiguration, the voice of the God the Father came from the Shekinah glory cloud and said, this is my beloved son. Jesus had Peeled back his flesh, as it were, and and given those disciples a glimpse of his glory. There is no question that he is royalty. That he is royalty. And so he announces here that he is exempt from this tax. He is exempt from this tax. And his followers are exempt as well. And the, and the basic logic goes like this. I mean, the Jewish temple is, is, is merely the temporary dwelling of the Spirit of God. Jesus is the true temple of God in whom the Spirit dwells. And we as his body, the Spirit dwells within us. The Apostle Paul develops this in 1 Corinthians. Though what Jesus is saying is, Listen. The whole temple thing, it points to me. The taxes are to keep it going to point to me, but, but I'm here. I am the fulfillment of the picture. So I'm exempt. And, and by your attachment to me, you're exempt too. You're exempt too. You don't have to pay this stuff. However, verse 27. By the way, if it ended at verse 26, then you could make a really strong case. About taxes, well, we won't go there. But, but you got a however going on here. Okay? Yeah, so much for the offering plate. You know, if it ended at verse 26. Anyway, verse 27, you got a however. However, so that we do not offend them. Go to the sea, throw in a hook, take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and me. Now, that's a way to get taxed, though, huh? I mean, this is very unusual. In like, fact, this is the only place where they, where they fish with a hook. They're net fishermen. Go down to the water, throw in your hook, catch a fish. First fish you drag up, open its mouth. There you're going to find the exact coin necessary to pay, the, you know, the double drachma for you and I. It's a miracle, to be sure. But there's, but there's not a focus here on the miracle, in fact, Matthew doesn't even say that it was fulfilled, but we would know it to be so. Because that's not the point. The point of the, of the whole thing is the, is the principle that Jesus draws out here. He says, listen, we are exempt from this. However, to, to in, the, to the, in this situation, for us to, to press our exemption is going to cause a major problem here. A major uh, uh, offense here. Now, since when did Jesus become worried about offending people? Right? I mean, just you know, kind of roll back a little bit to chapter 15, verse 12. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? And he responds, Right? Every plant which my heavenly father does not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They're blind guides of the blind. Now he's worried about offending. Here's the difference. Here's the difference. When a practice is wrong, as a matter of principle, it is wrong. Jesus stands up and says it's wrong. Back there in chapter 15... It was about eating with unwashed hands, right? And Jesus says, listen, this whole thing is made up. And and it's a way for you to to elevate yourself and oppress the people. This thing is out of here. You've missed the whole point of the law. Here, instead, what he says is, I'm exempt. And so are you. But we're going to humble ourselves. We're, we're We're going to pay the tax, we're going to accommodate ourselves to those who, right in this place, whose conscience is weaker than ours. They don't understand that, that Messiah has come, the fulfillment of the temple. So to take my stand publicly right now will we'll do nothing to, to advance the gospel in this situation and instead will merely hinder it. It will be one more charge. He doesn't pay taxes either. It will cause an offense among the very people he's trying to reach. The Apostle Paul takes that notion. Go to 1 Corinthians or first, yeah, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We're not going to have time to develop it. You can develop it on your own. But Paul makes some really, really important statements here in 1 Corinthians 8 about surrendering personal liberties, doesn't he? He says in chapter 8 and verse 13, they're dealing with, uh, within the fellowship, within the brothers living in community together. And he's, he's dealing with the issue of what do I eat, whether it offends my brother with a weaker conscience or not, and so forth. And he says, verse 13, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. That is, I will not exercise my right in a public setting where it would lead to the, to, the, uh, to, to the crushing of the faith of my brother. Chapter 9, in verse 12, Paul is he's developing the argument here, and he's saying, listen, I didn't take any money for the ministry. We kind of worked with our own hands and made it happen here, but we have a right to get paid. Verse 12, if, if others share the right over you, do not we more? Nevertheless, we do not use this right, but we endure all things, so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Verses uh, uh, 19 and, and following, he says, But though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may, may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, I became as without law, though not being without the law of Christ, but under, or without the law of God, rather, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker with it. What do you think Paul came up with these ideas? You know, just kind of sitting around and going, you know, I think it would be good if I did this and did that. He's applying the truth that Jesus instructed back there in Matthew 17. He's applying the truth. And I don't have time to look at it with you, but if you want a clear example, you can go to Acts chapter 21 where, where Paul comes and, and he pays the, the dues, the vows of these men who have been under a vow. and He brings them into the temple and, and he does it all specifically not to cause offense among the Jewish believers there in Jerusalem. We call it the principle of accommodation. Principle of accommodation. You surrender your right. You, you're a slave. It's about duties. It's about responsibilities. It's not about rights and privileges. And here's where the rubber meets the road. Why is it? Why is it that we're often more willing to... to, um, to Surrender our right in the face of unbelievers and for the sake of the gospel, and appropriately so. And then to insist on our rights in the fellowship of believers. We'll go a long way to accommodate the lost for the opportunity to share the gospel with them. And then we enfold people in the fellowship and we beat each other up. We insist that it's got to be my way. It's got to be my way. We criticize. We judge. In extreme examples, we withdraw ourselves from the fellowship because we don't like it. Beloved, these things should not be. These things should not be. We're called to live together in peace. And that means surrendering our rights surrendering our rights. Listen, the only antidote is the gospel. It is the only antidote. When you find it welling up within you, I've got my rights. You can be sure of one thing. You have lost sight of the gospel. You have lost sight of the gospel. We need to Turn to Christ. We have been rescued from slavery to sin. Gloriously brought into slavery to Christ. And what a wonderful freedom it is. Free to serve Christ and His people. It's liberating. May God give us grace to do so.